coming up on the Mission Readiness Podcast. If we don't have a healthy population that can, you know, get up as needed and go to far offshores and, and defend our nation, right, we are in big, big, big trouble. And, it, and, and Mission Readiness has highlighted this, that our American youth are not fit to fight in many cases. And that's a national tragedy. Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Rich Gross and Jake Ferreira. Welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. I'm your host, Rich Gross. With me today, our Interim National Director of Mission Readiness, Jake Ferreira. Jake, how are you? I'm doing great, sir. How are you? I'm doing really well. Hey, I'm excited about today's podcast guest. He's been on before, uh, but he's absolutely one of the best guests we've ever had, so I'm excited to talk to him. I agree, sir. Dr. Mozafarian is a superior leader. He's a subject matter expert in many areas, particularly cardiology, nutrition science, and policy. And I think, you know, as a mission readiness member, we do everything we can to ensure that there's nutritious foods and physical activity, and it's readily available in schools and communities across the country. Uh, We just want children to be healthy and physically fit for life. And then you know, we always want to have strong partners in doing that work. And I don't think we have a stronger one than Dr. Mozafarian. He's a really special guy. And I think our listeners are not only going to enjoy hearing from him, but they're going to learn something too today. Well, Dari's always fun to listen to. I recently actually had a chance to listen to him as a podcast guest on another podcast. So I, I kind of have a hint of what he might talk about today. I think it's going to be a great conversation. I learn something every time I talk to him. I learn something every time he posts on LinkedIn or other social media. So I'm really excited for our listeners to get a chance to hear from him again. So without further ado, let's talk to Dr. Dari Mozafarian. Well, today we're thrilled to welcome back one of our great podcast guests, Dr. Dariush Mozafarian. Dari is a cardiologist, a special advisor to the provost at Tufts University, a professor at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy, and the Tufts School of Medicine. Dari stepped away from his role as dean for this current academic year to focus on other special projects, including advising the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health. He'll return to his role as dean in July. Dari has authored more than 500 scientific publications on dietary priorities for obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular diseases, and on evidence-based policy approaches and innovations to reduce diet-related diseases in the United States and globally. He's got a Bachelor of Science in Biological Science from Stanford University, a Master's in Public Health from the University of Washington, his doctor of medicine from Columbia University, and a doctorate in public health from Harvard University. Before being appointed as dean at Tufts, Dari was at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard School of Public Health for a decade and clinically active in cardiology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dari is married, has three children, and actively trains as a third-degree black belt in Taekwondo. Dari, welcome back to the Mission Readiness Podcast. How are you doing? Terrific. It's really uh, great to speak with you again, Rich. 
You too. And I really appreciate you coming back. Your earlier podcast with us was one of the most listened to we've had. Uh, and you've done some amazing things since then. It's been a while since we've had an opportunity to chat with you. And I think to say you've remained busy would be an understatement. You've experienced a significant shift in priorities over the past year or so. You temporarily stepped back from your leadership role as the deans for Tufts Friedman School to engage in a number of endeavors, including developing and co-leading a task force that helped inform the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health and the administration's national strategy that was published last fall. Can you please share with us how you arrived at the decision to shift priorities? Well, you know, I'm a, as a cardiologist from, from my whole, my whole career from, you know, early on in medical school, it was really obvious to me that food and nutrition was the biggest issue facing my patients for their health. And yet we weren't learning anything about it in medical school. So that was the first big, you know, shock. And then secondly, the science of the time was not supporting the policy of the time. The policy of the time was a low fat diet and in the nineties. And when I read the science myself, you know, it wasn't supported by the policy. And so I, my, my career has been about figuring out the science for what people need to eat and then actually getting that science to, to people. And so, you know, I've really been terrific to be at Tufts leading, leading the Friedman School of, of Nutrition Science and Policy as Dean, because our school has that same mission. At the same time, you know, when there are major national events where, you know, every, every 20, 30, 50 years, you know, big things can happen. Policy change is not, is not linear. And right now, I think we're at a potential tipping point around food and nutrition in this country. I think people recognize with COVID-19 in particular, but also, you know, the, the, all the conversations around racial equity that our food system is broken. It's, it's not giving people nourishing food. It's making them sick. Um, it's uh, making some people sicker than others, people who are lower income, less educated, people who are in Appalachia, other rural communities, the South, people who are racial and ethnic minorities. Uh, and it's costing our economy hundreds of billions of dollars a year in preventable healthcare spending. Uh, it's, it's hurting our environment. And it's even intersecting directly with the COVID-19 pandemic in that the people who, who were most likely to get sick and die had diet-related diseases, obesity, diabetes, hypertension. And so I think all of that has made people really, for the first time, in a crystal clear way, get that the food system is not working. And so, with that background, you know, we were we we've always talked about the need for policy change. You know, that the that the power of the government to be a catalyst for good and a catalyst for change um, has always been true. And there is a tipping point now with the tension at the states, attention in the national government, and even internationally for policy change. And so that's kind of what I'm focusing on is to try to help make sure that the policy change happens and, and that it's science-based. Your efforts are, are not going unnoticed. And, and in fact, I, I think some your LinkedIn posts are some of the most informative that I get in my feed. And I, I do appreciate that. I mentioned the task force and, and the work you've done helping the White House, the White House conference, which I think was a very important event. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and how the efforts of the task force progressed? Yeah, I, let's, I think it's good to go back first a little bit in, in history and kind of lead up to it. You know, the, the task force was an independent group, um, not endorsed by the, the White House, an independent group we put together to help inform the 2022 White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health. Before I kind of talk about that, though, like, why did we, you know, why did we have a White House Conference? It's really good to go back in history. So, so you know, the, the food system we have today, Rich, was created 
very actively with active government policy due to top priorities of the 20th century. We have a 20th century food system. Um, and what were the two top priorities? The biggest two things that happened in the, in the three things, the biggest three things that happened in the 20th century were one, the discovery of vitamins. So vitamins were discovered in the 1930s. That was recent history uh, discovered and synthesized. And the understanding that we needed to have a minimum amount of key vitamins to not get diseases like rickets and scurvy and pellagra and all these other conditions. The second big, big thing that happened was World War II. Um, you know, if, if we look at the disruptions in the food supply from the Russia attack on Ukraine, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what happened in World War II. Uh, just in Russia, six to seven million people died of famine during World War II. In China, another five million. And in, in, in Greece, you know, a, a European country, 300 to 500,000 people died of famine in World War II. People were dying because of disrupted food supply. So that was the second big thing was World War II and the disruptions to, to food and nutrition. And then third was the population explosion. We went from, you know, about one and a half billion people in 1900 to six billion people in 2000. More people were born in 100 years than had ever been born in all of human history combined previously. And so there was huge, huge fears of the famine that a billion people were going to starve by the turn of the century. And there were books that came out like The Population Bomb by Stanford professor Paul Ehrlich and, and his wife that talked about, you know, we have to just pick which countries we're going to try to save and let the other ones just starve. And, and he said India, for example, he said India has no hope. Like we just have to let India go through its starvation phase because we just can't, don't have enough food. So the 20th century was a time of great upheaval and the government recognized that. So in 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt ordered the country to host the National Nutrition Conference on Defense. And he ordered his, his uh, a, a secretary, Paul Nutter, to host this conference to say, look, we have all this science on vitamins, we have disrupted food, what do we need to do? And so that conference in 1941, led by the president, led to enriched flour, like all the enriched flour we have now that's enriched with, with B vitamins. It led to the first dietary guidelines that actually were based on nutrients. For the first dietary guidelines before, it had been like, well, you need to eat a little bit of every food group. And now for the first time, dietary guidelines were like, we need to get enough vitamin D, you need enough protein, you need enough vitamin C, you need enough B vitamins. And so the dietary guidelines were, were based on that. And it led to other things that were really focused on vitamins. Now, that was the big concern from the science of the 1930s. As I mentioned, with the aftermath of World War II and all the famine and the population explosion, in the 1960s, the deep, deep concern was famine and deep, deep concern was not enough food. And so in the United States, in the 1960s, there were people that just didn't have enough food at all. And, and were, you, know, you had kids with emaciated arms and distended bellies. And um, uh, Senator Robert F. Kennedy went to the South and did a tour of the South of some of these, these, these families. And there was an ABC special called Hunger in America. And there were magazines on this topic in the 1960s that, that we really were, were people were afraid of, of true caloric shortage. And so President Nixon, right? So, so here we have two presidents, not, you know, not liberal presidents, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and President Nixon hosted the second conference in 1969, the White House Conference on, on Food, Nutrition, and Health, which really was focused on calories. How do we get enough calories? How do we prevent kind of this, this problem of hunger in the United States? And that led to huge, huge changes in US policy. It led to the dramatic expansion of school lunch, the dramatic expansion of food stamps, which is now called SNAP. It led to the creation of WIC, the program which feeds women, infants, and children in, in, in this country. One in two babies born in the United States are on WIC. It led to school breakfast. School breakfast didn't exist. It led to nutrition facts, guide paneling panels, and it, uh, and it led to even 
updates to the dietary guidelines uh, uh, for, for Americans. And so that conference was instrumental. Now you fast forward 50 years after the 1969 conference and the food system we created achieved its goals. And, and so we prevented mass uh, starvation. Hunger is at its lowest level it's been in, 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 in the world. Vitamin deficiency diseases have gone down dramatically. There's really not much pellagra or scurvy or, or you know, rickets in the United States anymore. Uh, and there's not that kind of you know, true starvation hunger in the United States anymore. Vast majority, right, where people are actually for months and months on end wasting away because of, of too little food. Um, although people still are food insecure and have trouble getting their next meal, but, but it's not the same, same challenge. And so the 20th century goals were achieved, but that what, 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 what did we have to do to achieve it, Rich? We had to create massive monocropping of crops. We had to pick a few crops that had huge yields and it was called the Green Revolution. Governments put in India, US, Mexico, Pakistan, put in hundreds of millions of dollars to change their agriculture. And we lost kind of the biodiversity of crops and farms and fruits and vegetables. And we went to just a handful of crop, corn species, handful of wheat species, handful of rice species that you know, together supply the vast majority of the world's calories. We industrialized not just farming, we industrialized the production of food and the processing of food to make it cheap and shelf stable. And so, so today when you go down the cereal aisle at, at, at Walmart or another grocer and you see these just aisles of highly processed, starchy, shelf stable, cheap cereals that are fortified with vitamins, that was a purposeful creation of the 20th century and these government efforts, these conferences led by, by the White House and by presidents to achieve the goals of the 20th century, uh, which was to avoid vitamin deficiency and starvation. So today, fast forward 50 years, you know, we and others have recognized that we face lots of new problems, the highest rates of diabetes we've ever faced, the highest rates of obesity and overweight we've, we've ever faced. Uh, young Americans that can't enroll in the military because of overweight and obesity or other nutritional problems, which is a huge threat to national security. Spiraling healthcare spending that's 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 crushing every other priority in, in our in our economy. These problems are dire. They're dire, and so it's it, they can't be solved sort of piecemeal by one farm deciding to do one thing, one medical school deciding to do one thing, one city having a community program, one business saying, oh, we're gonna change the problem. That'll take too long to, to, to fix the problem. We need a plan, we need a national plan. And so, you know, as soon as uh, President Biden was actually nominated, even before he won the election, we and others started reaching out to his teams, highlighting these issues saying, you know, we hope, you know, that if you are elected, you will think about have a second White House conference and over, the course of his presidency, we, we and others had conversations with his team, uh, with Ambassador Susan Rice, who leads the Domestic Policy Council in particular, highlighting these, is, these issues and, and asking, pleading, convincing, begging for there to be a national convening to really try to come up with a new national strategy for the next 50 years. And I'm really delighted that there was bipartisan support in Congress for this. And so one of the few bipartisan bills that was introduced a couple of years ago in both the House and the Senate by Republicans and Democrats was to host a White House conference. Um, funding was put in uh, for this, and you know we should really champion uh, uh, Senators Booker and Braun and, and uh, Congressman uh, McGovern and the late Congresswoman Jackie Walorski, who were champions for this. And they worked also with the administration and, and the White House conference was hosted. So when I say we and others, you know, this was definitely not me alone or even Tufts alone. A lot of groups 
paid attention to this, but we put together a task force over a year before the conference was announced to really try to, 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 to make these issues come to the forefront of, of national policy. And, and the task force was co-chaired by uh, humanitarian and chef Jose Andres, who, who leads World Central Kitchen, by Ambassador Earthrin Cousin, who uh, led the World Food Program for the Obama administration, by uh, Senator Bill Frist, a cardiovascular surgeon, Republican, former Senate Majority Leader, very well respected, uh, and by Secretary Dan Glickman, former Secretary of USDA. And that task force, which, which again had about 20 other members, uh, uh, experts across government, clinical work, academics, um, over the course of a year before the conference, you know, worked with the White House and gave updates and advice to the White House um, uh, on, on, on what we hoped they would focus on. And then came out with an independent report before the White House conference itself to say, here are some top priorities, which I, I hope we can talk about. And we did that not just kind of bringing together people and sitting in a room, but we went out across the country. We held about 20 listening sessions across the country with especially highlighting people who are actually have lived experience in, in food insecurity, poor nutrition, diet-related diseases, and really wanted to hear from people on the ground what they were experiencing. We held three national policy convenings, uh, one with um, Mayor Adams in New York City, one with Kaiser Permanente uh, uh, in Oakland, and one with the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, D.C., where we brought together you know, over 200 experts and people to talk about these issues. And we put, we, we asked for and solicited re existing policy recommendations and reports, and we, we actually looked at and read over 75 policy, recent policy reports that people had put together on food and nutrition, uh, including from Mission Readiness and, and, and others. And we put all that information together uh, in just a few short months into our task force report, which again, ho hopefully we can talk about, where we said, look, these are the, the, the best bang for your buck priorities. This is what where the U.S. needs to go to fix food. If we're going to solve diet-related disease, health inequity, spiraling healthcare spending, national security, we need to take a, the same kind of strategic approach that Franklin Delano Roosevelt did, that President Nixon did. We need to do it now, and we need to do it in a, in a sensible, nonpartisan way, because this is everybody's problem. You know, it's interesting because the origins of mission readiness are, are in World War II and the idea about kids need better school lunches because of that hunger issue that you highlighted. I'd never heard that history laid out so well. And, and now, of course, we're dealing with the opposite problem. Kids are, are obese, as you've mentioned. I heard you say on another podcast, we've got a 20th century food solution for, a 20, for the 21st century problem that they don't match. Uh, I'd love to hear you talk more about the report and the results uh, of the task force's work and, and what came out of that conference. Is there hope there? Is there movement? Well, so, yeah, I'll talk briefly about our, our report and then I think in a little bit more detail about the national strategy that came out of the White House conference, but also outside of both of those two things, what's going on on the ground in states and in cities and in, in private organizations around the country who've all, I think, been energized. I think one of the most important things of all of this work and the White House conference was that, you know, lots of previously disconnected people and groups realized that there's a lot of people who care about food in this country. I mean, if you ask the average American, they, they want to know, what do I need to, to, to be healthy? What do I need for my kids to be healthy? What do I need for my own brain to be healthy? If I'm a mom, how, you know, it is the, the top issue for many people to be sure they eat healthy food. And yet people are confused. People don't know what to buy. There's, there's, 
misleading information, conflicting information. Uh, industry, in some cases, has bad actions like tobacco. In other cases, industry is doing innovative, good things, and people are confused about the role of industry. So, so I think you know I'll talk about our report, but I you know also want to kind of give the big bigger picture. So our report, um, you know, which is freely available on on our website. Hopefully, we can put the link up with the podcast. Our report identified through this very uh, comprehensive effort of bringing together stakeholders from business, from both sides of the aisle in politics, experts in in, in clinical care, nonprofit organizations, uh, individuals with lived experience. We we came up with thirty policy recommendations across six domains. And I think that's important to emphasize. There's not one silver bullet. There's no way, Rich, that we're going to do one thing and we're going to fix the food system. But we also don't need to do a thousand things. There's not. It's not insurmountable. We can fix this. We can fix this. And so we came up with 30 recommendations across six areas. And so first, I'll just highlight the six areas um, because I think that's important. You know, the first is to really strengthen and leverage the federal nutrition programs, which includes SNAP, school meals, WIC, and, and meals for the elderly. Together, those programs feed one in four Americans across across the year. So those are very, very powerful programs. We have to be sure they're meeting their intended goal of helping Americans with, with food security and with nutrition security and making them healthier. Second, our second domain of actions was around public health and nutrition education. So you know, many examples, but as one, like we have to put the F back in FDA. It's the Food and Drug Administration, and yet it focuses almost all of its budget on on drugs. And the next biggest portion is on tobacco, and almost all of its food focus is actually on on avoiding bacteria in foods rather than actually making foods more nutritious. And so we have to put the F back in FDA. We have to use the power of the CDC dietary guidelines, nutrition education. There's a bunch of stuff we can do in public health and education. The third big domain, and one which I'm really most excited about, and hopefully we can talk about more, is healthcare. I'm a doctor. Healthcare is almost one in five dollars in the economy, and yet it's not, you know, integrating and incorporating nutrition. And so there are really exciting strategies now, which we call food as medicine strategies, where food can be used as a treatment. A doctor can prescribe food as a treatment for diabetes, as a treatment for heart failure, as a treatment for cancer, and and the insurance will pay for it. And it actually works uh, just as good or in some cases better than a drug or or surgery or or other procedures. So I think healthcare is a really, really important part of the solution. And and part of that is also training doctors about nutrition uh, and being sure that they understand nutrition. The fourth domain is is research and science. And again, hopefully we can talk about this in more detail, but we have learned a lot in the last 20 years about nutrition and chronic diseases, but we don't know enough. There's so many questions about the gut microbiome, about brain health, immunity, allergies, cancer, mental conditions like autism, which could be linked to food, uh, personalized nutrition. So we know a lot, but, but we really need a new you know, national moonshot on, on nutrition science research. The, the fifth area, which is really important as well, is business innovation. The, the private sector has to be part of the solution. They're the ones that grow the food, ship the food, make the food, distribute the food. And the food sector is much, much bigger than sort of the food companies. It's all the grocery stores and retailers. It's the restaurants. It's the farmers, right? The whole food chain. We need to catalyze that. that. And the same way that the government has done this for green energy over the last 20 years, there's lots of legislation that has helped you know, create renewable energy. 
we need to have a national strategy to catalyze the food sector and, and make it more, more part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And then the last of the six domains was actually federal coordination. We need a plan. We need somebody in charge. And, and there was a government accountability office report in 2021. The GIO is the watchdog of the federal government. And it did an audit and it found there are, there are over 200 different federal actions that are trying to reduce diet-related diseases and they're uncoordinated, they're not harmonized. And the GAO recommended to Congress that they create a new structure and authority and a plan. So we need, we need some new leadership structure in the government to actually deal with food because food right now is scattered across everything. And so those are our six you know, areas of recommendations. And many of those recommendations, the majority of the, those recommendations made it into the national strategy. And so the national strategy that was put out by the White House includes, you know, all of those areas, ways to strengthen the federal nutrition programs, ways to advance public health and nutrition education, ways to integrate food as medicine into healthcare, ways to advance science, ways to help with business innovation, and, and ways to advance coordination. They didn't put in everything that we recommended. Obviously, lots of groups put in recommendations, but I would say 90% of what we thought was important made it into the plan. And, you know, I'm really, was really gratified to see that. And, and, and so now, this year, to get back to your original question, I decided I'm going to step away from, from being dean for a year and really focus on implementation and getting a structure for implementation. If, if all of this was just a press event and people taking pictures and smiling and shaking hands and nothing happens, I'm going to be pretty disappointed and, and that won't be a success. So we actually have to be sure that, that some of these great plans on paper turn into reality. No, that's great. And I, I we'll, we will definitely post the links to both the task force report and the uh, final national strategy that came out of that conference would really urge our members and our listeners to, to go look at those in detail. It, it, they're worth a read. I will say they're absolutely worth a read. A lot to unpack. Uh, let's start with the food compass, because I think it it is an important innovation that you're a part of. Because folks, as you mentioned, folks struggle with what to eat. Folks don't know the right things to eat or the quantities. And as you've mentioned, and we will talk about it, you know, food is related to our health so much. Uh, talk a little bit about this food compass, which is a really, I think, a very smart way for us to identify, purchase, and, and consume healthier foods. Yeah. So, you know, you're you're talking about how do we, you know, how do we clear up consumer confusion? Because the consumer is driving innovation for sure. And at the same time, they don't know what to buy. Is it low carb, low fat, keto, organic, right? Local, like what are, what are, what are the rules and, and what products do we need to buy? So in the absence of, in the presence, I should say, of all that confusion, there have been attempts around the world to try to come up with food rating systems that try to give kind of scores or, or ratings to foods um, you know, yellow, red, or green, or A, B, C, D, or numbers to help consumers in their choices. Uh, now, first, I want to, it's important to say what these food rating systems do not do. So, so these food rating systems are not intended to replace dietary guidelines. It's not as though, you know, you can only eat foods that get sort of a perfect score of 100. You know, for example, asparagus and strawberries get great scores. You know, that's a, those are healthy foods in any rating system. But you can't just eat asparagus and strawberries, right? You'll get sick. So they're not intended to replace dietary guidelines. What they're intended to do is when you have your dietary goals, whatever your dietary goals are, whether you have diabetes or whether you're trying to lose weight or whether you're following the American dietary guidelines, 
that when you actually go to the grocery store and there's 17 kinds of yogurt and there's 32 kinds of cereal and there's 64 kinds of bread and there's all these different fish dishes and mixed meals and savory snacks, you can actually say, okay, I'm going to buy a cereal today or I'm going to buy a, a piece of meat today to cook or I'm going to buy some, some seafood today. You can choose between them and have a make a more sensible choice. So I think that's really, really important because you know, some, some of the criticism of rating systems comes when people forget that they're not intended to replace your, your food-based guidelines. They're, they're intended to help you make choices. So there are existing systems around the world, Rich, and they're really big and, and used um, uh, quite widely. The United States does not yet have one. In Europe, the two most common ones are the Health Star rating and the Nutri-Score, and they're widely, widely used. They, they're little front-to-pack icons or labels. Uh, in, in, in South America, they're not using um, kind of holistic systems, they're putting black box warning labels for salts and sugar and saturated fat and calories, which is another way to kind of rate foods. So this is happening around 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 the world. And a few years ago, you know, we and other researchers looked at these existing systems and we said, you know, they're pretty good. They have some strengths, but a lot of them are based in kind of the priorities of the last century. They're they're focusing on fat and calories and saturated fat and sugar and salt. And that's it. And maybe a couple of other things. And that's pretty good, but we, we've learned a lot about food. We've learned about fermentation. We've learned about the importance of fiber. We've learned about, you know, the importance of, of bioactive compounds that are in things like dark chocolate and olive oil and, and green tea. Uh, we've learned about processing, the negative impacts of processing. And so we wanted to create a system that was more holistic and included kind of more of these criteria. And so as a research project, we, we worked on this for a few years. And last year we published a, a couple papers on our proposed system, which is called Food Compass. And what Food Compass does is it takes 50 different attributes of foods and it puts them together and gives a score of, of one to 100, with 100 being the best and one being the worst. And you know, there's probably not much of a difference between a 95 and 100 or between a 40 and a 50, that's not the point. The point is broadly, you, know, you wanna eat foods that have higher scores. And so we proposed you know, anything over 70, encourage, eat, eat, you know, uh, try to eat as much of as you can. Foods between sort of 30 and 70, eat in moderation. You know, there's plenty of healthy choices in there that you can eat in moderation. And then foods below 30, don't never eat, but just minimize, you know, try to think of those as treats or things you're going to eat once in a while. Um, we ultimately rated about 60,000 products across the U.S. food supply. And we showed first that, that the system works better than kind of a lot of the existing systems. And secondly, importantly, we looked in a, in a large study of 50,000 Americans and we said, look, Americans who eat foods with higher food compass scores, are they healthier? And we found that they were, that Americans who picked products and ate products that had higher food compass scores um, had less obesity, lower glucose, better blood pressure levels, lower cholesterol levels, less metabolic syndrome, less cancer, and actually lower risk of dying. They had lower risk of dying uh, if, they, if they ate food products. And so, Food Compass is still, I would say, a research project. It, we still want to update it. You know, we've received some scientific feedback, and there are probably some things to, to fix and make it even work better. And so we hope this year to publish kind of a more final version of, of the algorithm. And we've published it and made it freely available. So anybody can take it and use it. Any cafeteria could take it and use it and put it on their products. Any the government could take it and use it if they if they wanted to. Scientists could take it and use it. Industry could say, "Look, I want to reformulate my products using this," because you know we're we're not trying to 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 do anything but be helpful um, and give people kind of a, a roadmap to to make healthier products. So, as I said from the start, it's not the silver bullet. Just giving people information isn't going to fix food. 
but it's just one piece of the puzzle. Well, and it does seem like it's it's so comprehensive, as you said, it doesn't just focus on a few a few items like the amount of sodium or the amount of saturated fat, and it takes more holistic look at food, which which I think is really helpful. Uh, you know, I mentioned before we started recording, I was recently at an army dining facility in Fort Bragg, and one of the changes that the army has made for soldiers eating their meals is to have a red amber or yellow or green card each food is rated and i don't know what factors they're using but you know a, a red is eat rarely a yellow is eat in moderation and 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 then a green is eat often and it, it was it was more helpful than just trying to you know figure it out for yourself if you will so i thought that was at least a step in the right direction well you know this is something that somehow the public and our government has seemed to forget that that one of the top reasons we need a healthy food supply is to have a good military and a, and a military that's sound. For thousands and thousands of years, the reasons governments, whether they were city states or national governments, cared about crops and protected their farms and made sure they had healthy food was to make sure their military was ready to defend the towns and cities of, of their of their uh, of their lands. And in 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt recognized that and and held this conference because we're going into world war. And now with the war in Ukraine, people are recognizing that just availability of food is, is, is a you know, national security priority. But somehow nutrition, you know, has been forgotten about, you know, in just the last 50 years, it's been forgotten that nutrition is a core, core element of national security. If we don't have a healthy population that can you know, get up as needed and go to far offshores and, and defend our nation, Right. We are in big, big, big trouble. And it, and and mission readiness has highlighted this, um, you know, at you as a general being part of mission readiness have highlighted this, that that our American youth are not fit to fight in many cases. And that's a national tragedy. And so I, I and so I think it's great that they're doing this at Fort Bragg. And I think that the Department of Defense, the DOD, uh, has always been an innovator when it comes to many things in American society. And. I hope the DOD will take on some of the national strategy that came out of the White House conference and, and make sure they have healthy recruits. And once the troops get into the forces, you know, uh, healthy nutrition. It's not only important for, for battlefield readiness, it could be important for, for getting over injuries, for mental health issues, you know, for many other, other reasons. So I think the DOD could be a big, big player in this push for a healthier food supply. I uh, could not agree with you more. Well, since we've talked about nutrition policy, uh, two significant opportunities this year. One's the farm bill and one are updated school nutrition standards, uh, both of which I hope you're familiar with. I'm sure you are. In terms of the farm bill, could you please explain to our listeners what this legislation can do to help ensure more American families have access to fresh and nutritious foods? Yeah, I'd love to. And, and I would add a third, which I hope we can discuss when we discuss school meals, which is WIC. There's updated WIC standards that have come out this year as well. So WIC is a really important program. So, uh, but let's start with the Farm Bill. Um, so that, far, the Farm Bill is a, is a, is a law that um, every five years has to be passed and renewed by Congress. And it's one of the few laws uh, that has always been bipartisan with strong bipartisan support and has always passed, um, as opposed to many other conflicts, because um, it, it covers two important areas. First, it provides uh, different kinds of support to American farmers. And second, it provides nutrition to you know, tens of millions of Americans. And so it brings together 
allies across those two areas, allies who care about rural America and farms and allies who care about nutrition and, and, and healthy kids and families. And, you know, very few Congress uh, folks in Congress don't care about those two things. And so, so that's positive. Um, most of the farm bill, it's a big piece of legislation. So, you know, some estimates are it's, it's, it's for over five years. And some estimates are that the next farm bill could be a trillion dollars over five years. So it's a big, big piece of, of, of legislation. It's one of the biggest pieces of expenditure that the government passes. Uh, and most of it is actually nutrition. Most of it is nutrition programs, in particular SNAP, the, the food stamps program, but also some of these other, other nutrition uh, programs. And then a big part of it is also conservation. There's a lot of funding in there for conserving American land. It's the biggest overall conservation bill in, in the government. So there's a lot of stuff in there for pr protecting the environment, protecting waterways and forests and things like that. And then there, the, the rest of it, about 20 billion a year is uh, for mostly crop insurance and other things for farmers. Um, it used to be subsidies and where, you know, if people, their corn price didn't make the price, the government would step in and pay the difference in the price. So, so people still talk about the subsidies, but that's disappeared you know, 10, 20 years ago. And, and really what it is now is crop insurance. And so um, crop insurance still mostly for the big commodity crops. So if your crops fail, um, you know, you, you have some, some insurance program, but it's not a price protection anymore uh, as, as it was before. And so that, that farm bill is, is, is really important. And I think the, for me, the biggest single opportunity in the farm bill for the topics we've discussed is you know, making sure that SNAP, the, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is about $100 billion a year and feeds about 40 million Americans a year, um, is meeting its goals of ensuring that people get enough food and get nutritious food. And I think there's some really concrete ways to, to do that and strengthen the program. Well, and Mission Readiness is a big advocate for SNAP, and we're in the process of prepping a letter for our members to, to join in and, and send to Congress uh, advocating for that program. Uh, you you also, one of the other two, and, and we'll get to the third WIC, but you mentioned the, the USDA, they're proposing updates to school nutrition standards in a few areas, uh, such as added sugar, milk, sodium, and whole grains. The goal being, of course, give kids a, a better balance or the right balance of nutrients for healthy and appealing meals. From your standpoint, why is updating these standards important and what should the general public know about the proposed changes? Well, school meals are so, so important for the health of our kids. And you mentioned this, you know, the, the first kind of federal school nutrition program came right out of World War II because the biggest reason that otherwise qualified recruits couldn't be drafted was, was poor, poor teeth, poor dentition from poor nutrition. And so there were some state programs, but there was no federal school uh, lunch program. So that came out of, of, of World War II and, and, and national security. And then, as I mentioned, in 1969, the school lunch program was greatly expanded. And so it went from about 2 million kids served uh, before the, the 1969 uh, White House conference to 11 million served after the conference. So a huge, huge increase in, in, in the program. So it's always been a program that's cared about our kids' nutrition. Now, that being said, if you kind of look at the quality of what was served in the 1980s and 1990s, it was pretty bad. And, and um, even in the 2000s, early 2000s, it was pretty bad. Not because you know, school administrators or those staff didn't care, but because the budget was so low uh, and you know, it was really pretty, pretty much junk food. And so we did an analysis of this, Rich, and before 2010, about 60% of all school meals were of poor nutritional quality. 
60% of the time that kids would go buy their food, it was a poor nutritional quality. And, and we rated that by sort of standardized scores of, of nutritional quality that have been, been well validated. What's amazing is after 2010, it went from 60% of school meals being of poor nutritional quality. Over the next few years, it's come down to only now about 20% of school meals are poor nutritional quality, a huge improvement, right? From 60% to 20%. What happened in 2010, the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, which was supported by Mission Readiness, wouldn't have passed without Mission Readiness' support and the support of First Lady Michelle Obama and others which updated the nutrition standards for school meals. And it just very sensible things, more fruits, more vegetables, no soda, more whole grains, less sodium, and, and it worked. And so today, school meals are actually on average the healthiest place kids get their food in the country. If you look at the average, average healthfulness of meals that kids get from grocery stores, they get from restaurants, they get from you know, other places like food trucks or entertainment venues, Schools are by far today the healthiest place kids get their food. Still not perfect, right? 20% of the meals are of poor quality. That's, that's not great, but better than it ever was. And so I think people who think of school meals from our own time when we were kids in public schools and think of like kind of the, the slop and the junk food that we were getting, that's no longer the case. School meals are pretty darn good, but they could be better. And so the USDA has proposed very, very sensible, very incremental um, updates to the school lunch program to make it healthier. They've proposed limiting added sugar. Uh, and so there would be limits, of, not zero, but limits on added sugar. And so it mean, for example, some of the chocolate milks today or other sweetened milks today, they could still serve them, but they'd probably have to cut the sugar in about half to serve them. And I think that would be great. I guarantee you kids will still drink them. If they've got half the sugar, they will still drink the chocolate milk. It's not a big deal, but it'll have half the sugar. I think that's great. Uh, it's proposing more whole grains and getting some of the refined grains out, which is also important. Uh, and, and the third big one is, is getting some of the salt out. Salt is way too high and, 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 and it hurts kids' blood pressures as, as children, which then leads to you know, disease as adults. And, and maybe also you know, some links between sodium and diabetes. So they're very sensible. And also the USDA has given really long timelines to these changes. They're, they've given years, years for industry to kind of do these changes. So I think they're incredibly important. Um, and it's, it's really important for folks who are listening to this podcast when, when the farm bill discussion starts up to call your congressman and say, uh, we've heard about this and we support it because USDA can implement this by themselves, but Congress can also block it. And so we don't want Congress blocking healthier meals for our kids. No, could not agree more. And I, that's really encouraging that meals have improved so much and in a relatively short period of time, 13 years. Uh, good to hear. Hopefully we can continue the trend, as you've said, and, and make them even more healthy. Uh, you also, uh, meant, oh, go ahead, oh, please. Yeah, can I just jump in there? This to me, that that result of a single law, the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, it it, it made healthier food for millions and millions of kids in just a few years from a single law really shows to me the power of policy and actually informed all the work that I do now around the White House conference, around national strategy, because, you know, and I should also mention that when we looked at nutritional quality of food in the United States over this period, there's pretty big disparities by income, education, race, when it comes to food from grocery stores, when it comes to food from restaurants, when it comes to food from worksite cafeterias. But when it came to food quality from schools, there were no disparities. The, the food quality, nutritional quality was similar and the improvements were similar. 
whatever your race, whatever your parents' income, whatever your parents' education. So not only did it improve nutrition for millions and millions of kids, it did it, did it equitably. That's really, really important. So, so that's the power of policy. So, you know, we talked about food compass and, and labeling. Nobody needed to put any labels on the, on the meals in the schools. They just all got better, right? And so that to me is the vision of the future where we don't need food compass, right? Where you go into a grocery store, you go into a restaurant, you go to school and, you know, the choices are pretty uniformly healthy. They're tasty, they're delicious, they're, they're sustainable and they're pretty uniformly healthy. And policy can make that difference. And so, you know, that power of, of a single law shows you how the federal government can have a very positive impact. And the kids' school waste did not go up. School waste actually went down. Kids are eating more of the food. Cost didn't go up. It cost the same. And, and industry was able, you know, they, they, they complained and moaned a little bit that this would put them out of business. And it didn't. They're still making money. So, you know, everybody wins. So I think it's really, really important as, as an example of how, you know, people think of the government as a negative force sometimes, that the government can be a positive force for good. Now, it went across the board and, and, and a good lesson, again, as you've said, in, in, in how policy can absolutely help. And we obviously, we believe that at Mission Readiness. You, Dari, you also mentioned changes to the WIC program, Women, Infants, and Children. Uh, tell us about those, please. Yeah, so WIC is a supplemental program that came directly out of the 1969 White House Conference, which was to, to give breastfeeding support, infant formula, and food to mothers when they're pregnant and to newborn kids up to age five. And as I mentioned, half of all kids born in this country are on WIC. So it's a really, really uh, important program. As opposed to the supplemental nutrition assistance program, WIC has pretty strict nutritional criteria. Um, you know, you can buy fruits and vegetables, whole grains, dairy, you know, basically a, a, some, a limited set of healthy foods, and it really works. And so many, many papers have shown that mothers' health outcomes are better, birth outcomes are better, kids' health outcomes are better, they learn better in school, they're, they're, uh, they're absent less in school. It, it's successful across the board. It's one of the most important kind of nutrition programs we have. So during COVID, a lot of things were done to help moms and kids because of all the struggles and challenges of COVID. And that included some more benefits for fruits and vegetables. It included some other updated guidelines, letting people have more flexibility to buy fish and seafood and other things. And so basically the updated WIC standards have codified that and kind of made them permanent. And so it's greatly, greatly increased the, the amount of the benefit for fruits and vegetables, for, for fresh fruits and vegetables, which is great. It's allowed and increased the ability of, of women to get seafood and, and fish as opposed to other kinds of, of protein sources, which, which is great. And it's also increased um, the ability to, to get whole grains, uh, more whole grains. So, so I think it's really smart and we need to start in the first thousand days of life to, to give every kid, you know, the best possible start. And, and so this hasn't been as controversial as I think as the school lunch guidelines have been, although some in industry have spoken out against this. I think it's really, really important. And kudos to Secretary Tom Vilsack and USDA for, the, for these new guidelines. No, oh, thank you for explaining those to us. Let's talk a little bit about healthcare and food. There's there's an intersection, and this spring, the Friedman School is going to host the National Food is Medicine Summit. Obviously, uh, harkens back to the famous quote by Hippocrates that let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Can you talk about the summit and why that's the topic? Why is that food is medicine an important topic for uh, that would yeah. justify such an important summit? 
Absolutely. So this is one of the hottest trends going on right now is, is, is food as medicine. And food as medicine could be defined in a lot of different ways, but I, I, I would define it as leveraging food-based interventions for treatment of disease in healthcare. So it's not supplements. It's not just the general idea that what you eat is good for you. It's actually integrating food into healthcare practice. And this has been going on in some ways for about 15 years through a focus on food security, which is that you know healthcare systems need to screen and understand who doesn't have access to enough food and then link them to programs like SNAP, like WIC, like the local food banks and other things. But that work has been under the concept of social determinants of health, right? We have to help people with their, their social issues like housing, transportation, and food security. That's important, that's excellent, that should continue. The difference between that and food as medicine is, is it's not saying that social determinants of health and food security and these other issues are peripheral to health and things that the healthcare system needs to kind of figure out and help with. It's saying that nutrition is core to health. It's fundamental to health. It's actually rich, the top determinant of health in our country, you know, by, by quantitatively, if you actually run, run the numbers, it's the top issue for health in our country. And so food as medicine is about advancing nutrition not uh, directly through the healthcare system as a covered benefit, as, as doctors writing things and insurance paying for it as a direct benefit. And the, and the two most exciting interventions are produce prescription programs where, you know, if you have diabetes or high blood pressure or obesity, you go in, your doctor writes your prescription and your healthcare pays for 20, you know, for, for part of or all of fruits and vegetables and beans and legumes and healthy food. And research has shown that that lowers A1, hemoglobin A1C and blood glucose levels. It improves blood pressure. It lowers uh, obesity. Uh, and in, in new research that we've submitted, it, it seems to at least be cost effective. It's at least as effective as you know, writing prescriptions for drugs for blood pressure or other things. And then there's a more intensive intervention called medically tailored meals where you don't you know, send the patient to the grocery store. They're so sick that, that they're so in and out of the hospital and in and out of nursing homes and emergency rooms that they can't shop and cook. And so you actually give them pre-prepared, nutritionally tailored meals delivered to their home, paid for by their insurance. And that program actually keeps people out of the hospital. And given how expensive a hospitalization is, uh, I had a relative who, who had some chest pain and went in overnight, got a cardiac cath, got an echo, was cleared, came home. Their bill was $39,000 for an overnight stay and a cardiac cath and an echo, right? <laughs> $39,000. For one night. So, so you know, paying, giving, giving people food sounds crazy on the one hand. It's way cheaper than keeping people out of the hospital. And so medically tailored meal, meals are really exciting. And what's exciting, Rich, is this, for people who haven't heard of this, this sounds like, you know, fluff and like all kind of, you know, crazy, crazy progressive ideas that'll never happen. But, but Healthcare organizations around the country are implementing this. States around the country are implementing this. And so North Carolina, uh, Oregon, Massachusetts, California, uh, uh, many other states are, are using Medicaid dollars to pay for these programs. Uh, we, we had a great conversation with folks in the great state of Oklahoma who are considering doing the same thing. Uh, the national strategy includes um, language in there that the uh, the VA hospitals should start testing and implementing these these kinds of programs. Medicare and Medicaid should start doing it. The Indian Health Service, which serves Native Americans, should should start doing it. And then major healthcare systems like Kaiser Permanente, the largest you know uh, uh, HMO in the country with, with whom we work, is implementing this. 
So it's happening in real time. And the research is really exciting. And so the summit is to kind of bring together the players across the country to talk about these issues and say, where do we go next? It's early. It's early days. We're still trying to figure out what works and for who and how do we do it and what's the dose and how long do you need it? Like there's a lot of questions, but it's a really, really exciting time. And so I think, Rich, I am I'm 100 percent confident that in 10 years, this is going to be standard of care. If, if you have the right condition, you're going to go to your doctor and your insurance is actually going to pay, pay for food um, when, when you need it. Well, and I could see where, you know, provide food, get people healthier quickly through a proper diet, proper nutrition, and at the same time, teach them how to cook that for themselves if they're able. Uh, One-two punch. Yeah, that's exciting. That really is a, a great innovation. I look forward to uh, hearing about the summit. Hopefully, you'll you'll post something about it. Uh, on social media. And also, you know, we might have to take a mission readiness road trip and, and go up there and, and see that as well. Well, well, the, the first half will be public and live streamed. And so we'll definitely get that link to you and get that link up to, to send out to folks. Um, the second half is going to be kind of a closed private conversation about around 200 healthcare leaders to kind of roll up our sleeves and see what work needs to be done. But we'll definitely get the, the first half live streamed out and anybody can register for it. Uh, that'd be great. Thank you. Well, we've talked a lot about big issues facing society, but frankly, some of our members may be facing challenges when it comes to their health. And I'm just curious, while I've got you, you're a cardiologist, you're an expert in nutrition and food and so many things. If somebody wants to make an improvement in their personal health and well-being, what would you tell them to start doing to lead a healthier lifestyle? Well, obviously, there's more than just nutrition, and, and I've worked with the American Heart Association and, and others, and the American Heart Association has a great set of, of principles called the essential eight, life's essential eight, and it's eat well, you know, exercise, don't smoke, sleep, and then make sure your blood pressure, glucose, uh, cholesterol, and weight are controlled, and so, and so I would encourage people to, to look at you know, um, the, the American Heart Association's essential eight. Focusing on nutrition, because that's kind of the focus of our, of our podcast, one of the single best things a person can do to, to make themselves healthier is to shop at a grocery store. You know, food out, purchase outside the home, pre-prepared food, um, even pre-prepared food purchase at grocery stores, which is increasing, right? You go to the grocery store and people go to the salad bar or the hot bar. Those foods, they're, they're not made usually in a healthy way. Um, and if you want to go to a restaurant and get a healthy meal, you're going to pay 100 bucks, right? So a really, a really healthy meal. So it's not affordable. So it's, it's a huge opportunity and time cost to go and plan out your meal and cook. But that's the single biggest thing probably anyone can do is to try to cook more, assemble. I, I, my wife and I, we have three young kids, you know, 10, 12, and 14. We're both working. We assemble a lot. We don't cook a lot. We assemble. You know, you, you can assemble a salad. You can put some fish in the, in the, you know, toaster oven for 20 minutes and, and, you know, make something on the side. You know, you, we, we try to cook in 10 or 15 minutes. So there's ways to do it. I think that's the number one thing. I think, you know, the, the second biggest thing is to try to reduce starch and sugar in your diet. And I say starch and sugar because people have kind of started to pay attention to sugar, but there's way more refined starch than sugar in the food supply. And, and refined starch is, all the bread, all the cornstarch, all the all the refined rice um, that's in almost every packaged product. And so if you look at almost every packaged product, the first or second ingredient is some kind of refined starch, wheat, rice or corn. That's those are the commodity crops that we talked about. The 20th century solution is now in our 21st century food products, you know, to, to, to bring it back to that. And so that refined 
corn, rice, and, and wheat is about 40% of calories in the US food supply. And metabolically rich, that's 100% glucose. It's glucose. And so when you eat it, it gets digested really quickly. It spikes blood sugar. Uh, and in addition to having harms by spiking your blood sugar and your insulin, it's all digested in the stomach and in the small gut. And so nothing gets to the large gut and you starve your gut bacteria. So it's a two, two for one bad punch on hurting your liver and your insulin and your glucose levels and starving your own gut bacteria. So trying to get rid of, or at least make those foods the side, the treat, you know, if you're going to have a piece of white bread or white rice or, you know, um, white crackers or cereals or other things, make it the side of your plate, you know, make it a side and try to fill your plate with more minimally processed kind of whole foods. So I think those are the two big rules, I would say. There's a lot of nuance and a lot of detail, but two big rules, you know, try, try to make your own food as much as you can and try to reduce, you know, starch and sugar. No, that's great. Good, simple advice for our listeners. Uh, thank you for that. Well, last question. We, we ask all our podcast guests the final, uh, same final last question. What books have you been reading lately that you might recommend our listeners? Well, I think there's a, some terrific books out there that I've really been enjoying. Um, you know, one book that I read recently has nothing to do with nutrition, but that's why it's fun to read books outside of your own area of expertise, which I would recommend is called The, the Billion Dollar Whale. And it's the true story of the M Malaysian Joe Lau, who, who stole and spent $5 billion from the Malaysian Wealth Fund gave some of it to the prime minister, took down the prime minister, and now is kind of lost in, in, in China somewhere. We don't know where he is, but it's a terrific story because it weaves together, you know, the, the crazy, crazy financial system we have, um, how many of the big investment banks went along with all this, how Hollywood got, got involved and Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese and The Wolf of Wall Street, the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, ironically, was funded by Joe Lowe through him stealing the Malaysian dollars. So, so uh, that story about financial excess was fed by financial excess. So it's just a terrific book that I think shows not only this kind of the, the weakness of humanity and kind of what one human can do, but also how all the system can kind of also go along sometimes in a negative way. Uh, and so I, I really recommend that book, The Billion Dollar Whale. My wife read it and absolutely loved it as well. And it's it's on my list now because she enjoyed it so much. So thank you for that uh, that recommendation. And, and thanks for being here today. I mean, it really has been a pleasure. Always great talking to you. We do very much appreciate your partnership with the Mission Readiness team. We appreciate everything you're doing for our kids, for our nation, uh, for all of us, really, in, in your career. So thank you so much. And uh, where can folks find you if they want to learn more? Well, I want to first thank, thank you and Mission Readiness Back. I mean, you've served our country uh, in, in, in you know, so, so many ways through, through your service in the military and now through your continued service um, in, in, as a retired Brigadier General, um, working with Mission Readiness. Just amazing. I'm so impressed with our outstanding voluntary uh, military. Every person I meet is just an incredible person with an incredible story. So thank you so much. And thank you to Mission Readiness. Um, you know, if people want to get a hold of me, just go ahead and email me at Tufts. It's my first name dot last name at Tufts.edu. So Dariush.Mozafarian at Tufts.edu. Look at our website, look up uh, the, the task force on hunger, nutrition, and health, and, and see what we're doing. Um, we have a, you know, 
uh, uh, um, a website going up soon on food as medicine. So, you know, look up any of these issues and happy to be in touch with anyone. Thank you so much. We'll post all those links, by the way, in the show notes so folks can find you easily. Thanks again for taking the time. Terrific. Great to talk to you. Jake, that was a fantastic conversation with Daria. What did you think? I loved it, sir. I really enjoyed listening to a number of different things. What I took away was a history lesson of sorts on how the nation arrived at the need for the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health last year. And you know, our nation's really fortunate to have leaders like Dr. Mozafarian who are dedicating their lives to drive for positive results in nutrition science and policy. And certainly at Mission Readiness, we're fortunate to have him as a partner. I uh, couldn't agree more. I think two of the, the big takeaways I took, put the F back in FDA. I loved it when he said that. And, and as you pointed out, how we got to where we are today with our food system, you know, a 20th century solution for, uh, the, and we're now facing 21st century problems. So definitely some room there for change and and he's helping drive that change. Well, thanks for listening to the Mission Readiness Podcast. Today's show was written and produced by Jake Ferreira, Kimberly Little, and Becky Mendoza. For more about Mission Readiness or to find an archive of every episode of the podcast, visit strongnation.org. The program is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, give us a positive review, and tell your friends about the program. Until next time, thank you for supporting our work at Mission Readiness to strengthen national security by ensuring kids stay in school, in shape, and out of trouble.